These tools are for you to use. Hey, I'm Dave Marr. Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and life. My guest this week is Vico Alvarez. Vico is an organizer who I know through the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America. She does a lot of organizing work for mutual aid on the south side of Chicago. She is the chief of staff of 33rd Ward Alderman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, one of the socialist alders here in Chicago. And she's a longtime labor organizer, um, comics artist. You can you can find a link to her website and her work in the show notes. You can follow her at, at the link in the show notes as well. You can follow me. You can subscribe to my newsletter, Hella Immaculate, where I continue these conversations. I do all that stuff in the show notes. But suffice it to say, Vico has a long history in activist organizing spaces, and I was really grateful to talk to her when I did, which if you're hearing this when it comes out, then it was this past Friday. This past Friday, there was a protest, uh, a direct action, a bunch of people showing up to a neighborhood in Chicago called Logan Square. And what I heard is that there were 7,000 people. I heard that it was the largest protest that neighborhood has ever seen. A lot of these things happened downtown and people really swarmed the square. And they did so because, unfortunately, unsurprisingly, Chicago police killed a 13-year-old boy named Adam Toledo. And they did that in the same week that they killed an 18-year-old named Trayvon Chadwell and a 22-year-old named Anthony Alvarez. And so Vico talked to me, you know, hours before she went to this protest. And I gave her the option to not talk. I was like, we can reschedule this. And she was like, no. And she talks about that in the in the episode a little bit. She was like, no, I'm I'm down to talk. And I was grateful to hear her perspective as a person of color and just to learn a little bit. Obviously, you know, I'm a white dude. I'm not here to give the definitive take on Adam Toledo. Great people have written great things about him. But w- what I will say is... Um, you know, th- this this show is about reimagining the world. I went through this coma, this month-long coma, and my life changed after it. And not in all the ways that you would necessarily expect. Certainly not in the ways that I expected. But I find, thinking about spiritual things, thinking about the afterlife, these kind of fun, surreal, fanciful, but also weirdly heavy things is is a way to reimagine ourselves, our identities, our relationships to the people we love, to our communities, to each other, to ideas. And part of the reason that I am excited about that and the kind of 
subtext under all of this is the activation I had last summer, 2020, around the uprisings after George Floyd's murder by police and learning about abolition, learning about the abolition of prisons, policing, the prison industrial complex, surveillance. Um, So I I don't want to claim an identity or any sort of position of authority as an abolitionist, but I will say that I fuck with abolition, that I want to abolish the police. And, And abolition is not just about this destructive thing. It's about imagining a world and Miriam Kaba in her book, We Do This Till We Free Us, and in other writings of hers, says, you know, it's it's not about just tearing these structures down, though it is. It's also about imagining a world where these things aren't necessary. And like th- these are just these these things we've we've grown to accept, like, oh well, we must need police, you know. Well, what what do why do we? What do they help? What have they helped so far? They've hurt. They've hurt immensely. And it's just, it's just, you know, my reaction to most of these things is numbness. It's, it's hard. And, and that's, I think that's a privileged reaction a lot of times. But the point being that these kinds of things, these, these murders, these, these killings, um, they happen because the police are doing their jobs. That is their job. The system was designed to eliminate the freedom of black and brown and non-white cisgender people in in American society. So the 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 death tolls we see, the the news, that is the system working perfectly. So that's that I guess, you know, that is my soapbox a little bit, but the point being that this is an abolitionist podcast, you know, it's about reimagining the world, reimagining the world personally and reimagining the world politically and, and in relationship to our communities. And Vico talks about communities a lot in this conversation. And yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. I, I hope you'll really enjoy it. And and I, I give this longer intro because this is not a typical this is your afterlife show. This is your afterlife. I have some some segments. There are some there are some set questions and I like to build the show around those questions, but this is a little bit more free-flowing of a conversation, a conversation with a bit of a different focus. I do ask some of those standard questions, but um this this really kind of takes the the protest and the direct action in response to those recent police killings in Chicago as its center. So I just want to honor that. Um, yeah, you know, it feels weird to, to show promo after that, but I will say if you like this show, this specific episode, I think you will love the rest of them. So please go to thisisdavemar.com, Check out my newsletter. Like I said earlier, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, tell your friends about it. If you like it, start with this episode and then, and then go to a lighter one, go to one with a comedian or a musician or something. And I do want to thank the folks at my Patreon, the pigeon level subscribers, especially Fred Fidua, Susie Carroll, 
Katie Llewellyn, and Kurt Chang. Those people help keep this show going. If you like this show, there is an extended episode every week with even more content, plus a lot of other stuff, live shows, playlists, um, providing good good content for for the the buck there. But that's it. I I really hope you enjoy this this episode, this this conversation I had with Vico Alvarez. I grab your whip and take it back to Shatown. When I'm in Shatown, I treat it. All right, so you you texted me that you texted me that we could that it might be interesting to talk today, even though I gave you the out to not talk today. And so that when I told you that got my gears turning, basically it threw a wrench in the gear of the normal podcast. Cause the normal podcast is pretty structured. I have like five or six normal questions that I ask people. They're like, you know, and heavy, but lighthearted. And so to talk about what we may or may not be about to talk about is, is very different. So I thought just to start, we could like literally, as opposed to making this evergreen, just ground exactly where we are right now. It's Friday, April 16th in the afternoon. We moved the recording time because you're about to head to the action in Logan Square for Adam Toledo. And what, what made you willing to talk now still? Um, for the longest time, I've been wanting to actually keep like a journal that's specifically for moments like this, I feel. So I don't want to call them like historical moments or whatever, but they kind of are. Um, and I've been wanting to document like, okay, you know, what was I seeing in the media? What was I hearing in my community? What was I feeling, et cetera? Because I think I've noticed that information moves so fast now that our emotions, our thoughts move just as fast with those moments. And there just isn't much time to sit with them, to analyze them, to think about, okay, this is the moment now. Where is it going to take us next? And we lose a lot, or I feel like we lose a lot anyway. So I kind of saw this as like, journaling yeah but audio recording um so yeah that was honestly why i've yet to buy that journal so i figured i would turn this into my journal that's great that's great and and so i'm very curious how experiences get turned into narratives and what gets left out and like you know to tell yourself the stories you've got about your life you're shaving off all these all these little parts that don't fit that kind of overall narrative. And so with us, you know, the week, the day after uh, the Adam Toledo video came out, uh, I also want to like, just say the names of Trayvon Chadwell and Anthony Alvarez. Cause I think uh, it's important to remember that police killed three people under the age yep. of 23 in, in that week. Yep. Um, but 
you know, so for instance, that's a thing. Like right now, all it's all justice for Adam, right? People aren't talking about Trayvon, aren't talking about Anthony as much. That's an example of the kind of things that get shaved down. But what to you are the the things that get left out in these narratives, the things that you feel like you need to journal about and get down that aren't being talked about? I think just how how normal this all is like it it obviously doesn't feel normal right like this video at this point was seen across the country we have all sorts of people commenting on it and it's going to lead to waves it already has in terms of movement spaces and whatnot so we're not living in you know a normal moment necessarily but for the communities that Adam was a part of um, that all these other young folks were a part of this is kind of normal and it's horrible that it is like these are just the names that we know of people who have been killed by police but then there's also just everyday lives that are lost young people's lives that are lost uh, whether whether it's a bullet or illness or something else like death this is this is bleak but death on the south side is pretty regular um especially for young boys, especially for men. Um, I can't tell you how many of my male identified friends in Chicago who have now reached 30, when they reached 30, they just, they were a little paralyzed to have even made it to that age because they didn't think that they would. And I'm not talking about like uh, kids who have been characterized the way that Adam's been characterized, like, oh, the gang life got him, blah, blah, blah. Like, nah, I'm talking about like kids who went to like Whitney Young and like Lane Tech, uh, who currently have like pretty nice jobs, uh, grew up, everything totally stable. But because the conditions are what they are in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods, like, part of your expectation in life is to not be able to live a full life if you're a young boy. So yeah, I think what's getting a little bit lost um, is just how normal this is. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so in terms of like, it's weird to try to characterize a normal experience as opposed to an extraordinary one. Cause the extraordinary one, you can be like, Oh, well it's different than normal in these ways. And so it's like, well, how do you characterize normal? But but let's say that the that this didn't make the news right now. What does processing that or experiencing that look like in these black and brown communities from your experience? It stays super tight. It remains with a very very small group of people. So there's a collective grieving with Adam right now, right across the city. People who have who've never met him, only ever heard his name because of this terrible thing that happened to him, are grieving for him. So when you don't hear the name, the grieving is really just with the family. So, like, I, I mean, I have a friend who I had no idea um, until recently that their cousin was shot and killed by a drunk police officer years ago, years ago. And I had no idea. I've known this person for years, but they never talked about it. Um, They probably never talked about it for a lot of reasons. Maybe it's legal reasons. Maybe it's personal reasons. You know, you lose somebody, it's not really something you're trying to advertise to the world. 
Um, so that was just a reminder that like, oh, you know, there's more, there's more atoms and they just didn't make the headlines. So yeah, the difference is just how much grieving happens around that particular case and how much movement, how much change could possibly come about because of what happened. So, you know, with my friend, nobody knew about it. And a part of me is like, I respect that. But another part of me is just like, fuck. <laughs> like, if more people had known about it years ago when it happened, I don't know. Like, what new conversations would it have sparked then across the city? I don't know. What do you, how do you feel about that, that whole thing of like, I mean, a death being bigger than the death itself, like, obviously, these things tend to be, I mean, maybe just culturally, but they tend to be pretty private, like, and tend to, yeah, stay small, even in a, in a good death, so to speak. Uh, but it's just an interesting phenomenon uh, to me, phenomenon, yeah, I guess one would be phenomenon. It's an interesting phenomenon to me of like, it can get gross easily to use someone's uh, death for yeah. any purpose, uh, even a really good purpose. So I don't know, what sense do you make of that? Like, how do you square, how, how do you how do you keep in mind that this is like an actual person and not just a uh, a tool to be used to create change? I mean, I wish it didn't have to be a tool to create change. Um, deaths should never be a tool for anything, um, much less one that that carries the weight of changing systems. Um, you know, like Adam's mom should have been able to gr- grieve privately. Um, no, no, all of us didn't need to know about that death. That's I can't even imagine what is going through her head knowing that so many people saw her little boy die on video that should have never been an expectation for her. And she shouldn't even be carrying this question of, do I release it? Do I not? Is it important for the public to see this or not? Should I be a part of this accountability of police movement or not? I wish she didn't have to be. I wish nobody felt like that was a question that they needed to answer, but I don't know. Like I can't, can't really like speak to it. Like I can't say any which way except to just roll with whatever that individual family happens to decide. Yeah. I don't know. Like I don't have a kid, (laughs) you know, like I don't have a close family member that has died at the hands of police. Like it's such an individualistic decision to make and all you can do is just respect it you know I like I obviously respect my friend who chose not to speak about it um and you know we'll respect wherever Adam's mom chooses to do from here on what's your relationship to these spaces as like collective spaces because I you know it's taken a lot for me to deprogram I'm still only at the beginning of deprogramming like my dreams my life it's like that shit can be very individual I have to I have to work hard to unlearn like you know 
even if my goal is to serve the world, the goal is for me to serve the world. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I'm not just trying to do Jesus shit. I'm trying to get Jesus reputation. You know what I mean? And so it's like, what's your experience, you know, coming from art spaces or just your life, whatever, what's your relationship between like individual dreams and collective dreams? Like, have you had to deprogram that same way? Or did you just like, you know, obviously being a white person, it's easier to to dream individually, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the capitalist way of life, right? Like yeah. pick yourself up by your bootstraps, take care of your own self-interest. It's all about you. Um, I will say that I think at an early age, I understood that it wasn't about me. <laughs> like, um, my, I, I, this, is so, this is so cliche, like immigrant family story, but like, my parents very much taught me at a very young age, like, yes, you need to go to school. Yes, you need to do good. Like, I'm happy you have all these nice awards from school, but like, understand that part of the reason you're doing this is to make sure that we don't stay broke. You know, and I I understood that as young as nine. Um, You know, I remember looking at like, uh, selective enrollment schools, you know, how do I get into the best school to make sure I get into the best college and I get the best job not for me, but so that when my parents, you know, need me so that when my brothers and sisters need me, um, I can help them. So because that's always been in my head, I've never been too prone to even enjoying a spotlight or too prone to thinking about myself without that also being together with somebody else. And oftentimes that was my family. And um, I think that's what got me into union organizing, honestly. How so? Um, I mean, union organizing is literally about the collective. Um, There should be nothing that is about just one person. This is not a space for, you know, celebrity activists and whatnot. It doesn't work that way. Um, You don't get a union by focusing on just one person. If you do, you end up with this star worker who's doing amazing things. They get fired in an instant. You need to be prepared for if and when that worker gets fired and they're out of the equation that they can be replaced by five more, 10 more, what have you. So I think because that was my introduction to organizing, I kind of understood like, okay, none of this is about an individual. It's always going to be about a collective so even when I went into the into arts and comics, um, yeah, it was fun, you know, getting the speaking gigs and being like, oh, Vico Alvarez, the comic artist. I was like, oh, cute. Um, but even my comics, I wanted them to make sure that they were helping a community that was resonating with it, um, that it was being shared as much as possible. I mean, part of the reason I didn't make money off of it was because I was giving my comics away for free <laughs> a lot of the times. Um, and the one that I made that was the most popular was meant to be easy, easy to access, um, cause it was for, uh, undocumented communities. It was for young people to understand what it means to be undocumented. I mean, like young people, like 12 and under to understand what it means because the common story at the time is they don't know until they get older. You know, they don't know what those realities are and they're left in the dark. So I created a comic that explained a little bit of the vocabulary, a little bit of the 
dangers, honestly, without it scaring or leading to anxiety, uh, without it scaring kids. So the more you can educate and inform, the idea was the better prepared they'll be to take on the challenges that come with this identity. And, you know, I made sure that thing was as accessible as possible. It was a zine, nothing, nothing too wild. Um, so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really good with the whole look at me stitch. <laughs> What's the wildest dream that you have for yourself? Period. Just like, and it doesn't have to be related to career. It doesn't have to be, I'm not, you know, it can be anything, but like a, a dream that you're, like maybe a little embarrassed to admit or would be like scared to admit or, but it's like, yeah, if I'm really honest, like I would love this thing and I kind of think it's possible. See, you got my, my artist and my movement brains tussling with mix each them other. Up, mix them up, jumble them up, let them wrestle. See, I, in my artist dreams, I would say this is graphic novel, like being able to like write a graphic novel for young people, tour it around the country, have it be free. But I know that's not how things work. Um, if you want to stay sustainable um, and make sure that it's something that connects to, you know, all the kids that I grew up with Um make sure that it connects and leads to them thinking anything from, you know, what I experience is a story worth telling. Because a lot of times, you know, you grow up broke, you grow up in immigrant families, you're used to just being on the side. You're used to thinking that like whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing isn't worth talking about. It's just regular old hood shit. Um, And, like I would hope to what create something. What does feel worth talking about in that when you when you like in those moments when you're young and when you're a kid and when you're being told it isn't worth talking about? What are you seeing that's being told to you is worth talking about? What kids are going through. Um, I think that young people, because they're seen as kids, because their entire world is shaped by adults yeah. who tell them what's worth speaking on, what's worth learning, et cetera, they forget that they are their own people. You know, they um, are conditioned to think that whatever story they had about a super tight friendship, you know, that they had with their friend who then suddenly had to move away for whatever reason that made them sad or made them depressed. They're sort of conditioned to think that like, okay, I'll get over it. You know, cause that's what adults tell them. Like, Oh, that's just a part of your youth. You'll be fine. Kids move away all the time, but it's like, nah, it's okay, kid. <laughs> like sit in that. Like you are sad. You just lost a very close personal relationship. Let's talk about it. Let's write a comic about it, et cetera, et cetera. Like literally just mundane, anything from mundane kid experiences um, to like kid opinions. <laughs> and I don't want to just say kid either. Cause I'm also thinking like teenagers. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I love working with teenagers. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, 
yeah, I, I love teenagers too. And I feel like I, cause I would, I would work in educational spaces and people look at you like you're some kind of either angel or psycho person that you would want to work with like middle schoolers. It's like, if you treat these people like people, you can have a pretty good time with some middle schoolers, you know? They're great. They're hilarious. Yeah. But do you, so you're saying that those kids are being told the only things that matter are like adult stories and what adults are telling you rather than the hood shit or the mundane shit. Yeah. And even like the hood shit is like, it's what you're supposed to be ashamed of. So that carries like a different sort of expectation for why you hide it. So the mundane stuff is just kind of like, oh, don't worry about a kid. Not important. The tough stuff, like whether it's, uh, I don't know, um, growing up with little to no money, uh, growing up with abusive parents, um, or in just uh, conditions that kids should not be growing up in. <laughs> um, you're taught that that is shameful, um, to be embarrassed of it. So then you don't talk about it at all. Like no kid wants to tell their friends like, oh, I had to stand in line for hours at the WIC office with my mom just so that I could translate for her so we could get some baby formula that we can't afford on our own. Um, You know, that costs like eight bucks or whatever. Like no kid wants to say, I I actually have a comic about this (laughs) actually where I remember um, our, in elementary school, my third grade teacher every weekend on Monday, after our weekends on Mondays, she would have us write like, what did you do this weekend? What did you do this weekend? And I was just like, ma'am, I didn't do shit. <laughs> I never do shit. We don't go out. There's seven of us. There is no money for anything to happen in this household except stay home and watch TV. So let me just bullshit a story for you right now <laughs> and say that I went to Six Flags. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I wasn't the only one bullshitting. But like I said it as if it was true because I didn't want to tell anybody that we don't have any money to be doing things. Right. And I didn't want to tell anybody that like, oh, my mom was way too depressed to be taking us even to the park. Like, or like my dad was too busy drinking to even remember that we exist. Like, there's no way. I don't, I don't think I told anybody those stories. That would you be know? pretty real <laughs> if, a, if a kid just said, just, just said it like that. Like, you know, my mom was too depressed to take us to the park and my dad was too busy drinking to remember we exist. So uh, yep. any questions? Right. And, and those were the conversations that I would sometimes get into with my with my middle schoolers because I did after school. So you're an after school teacher. There's less rules mm-hmm. um, than a regular teacher. And it was great. Like I could talk to them about anything. Um, and they loved it, too, because they were asking questions that weren't getting answered otherwise. Like we were having a whole conversation once uh, in my comics program about being bisexual. Like they had questions about whether bisexuality existed and they were so funny. They were whispering it to themselves, but like loud enough that I could hear them. And I was just like, I understand what's going on. What's up? (laughs) And like, they want to have these conversations. It's just, we don't always entertain them. We don't let them. Yeah. Or yeah. A conversation like that becomes, I mean, becomes sexualized even like oh you can't be talking about this salacious thing and it's like well as much as it is about sex this question is more about identity and about moving through the world than it is about like 
some kids wanting to, you know, be perverts or whatever. It's like, that's not it at all. No. And that's not even where their heads are at. Right. Like they literally just have questions. Like just answer them. One of the questions that I ask people normally, because this show, This Is Your Afterlife, is based on my last one-man show, um, which was set in the afterlife. And one of the features I'm, I'm telling people is that you get to completely relive one memory. You get to choose one memory and hop back into it whenever you want, like a, like a little room you can pop into. And I ask people what memory would they choose if that were if that were the case but i'm wondering for you if there's a moment you look back on that you think that if you have a memory of like feeling free if there's if if when you think about the work you're doing cuz i don't know if you're the same for me it's like the word more than any ideology is just liberation like that's that's the thing to me and i'm wondering if you have a memory of feeling free where you're like if everyone could feel that or if kids could feel this or if whoever could feel what i felt in this moment i'd be working for the right thing can you think of a moment like that i don't know why i thought this and i don't I'm going to have to draw the connection out loud, I think. But the first thing I thought of was one birthday, how old was I? Probably turning 22 maybe or so. Um and my while I was sleeping my mom had left like a note and a little gift by my bed so when I woke up uh I saw like my gift and then I read the note um and that was the first time that my mom had ever written I love you we don't say these things we I know it like sounds nuts right like 22 and like the first time like your mom says that she loves you blah 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 but i think a lot i don't talk about this very often cuz i got i got kind of tired about talking about my personal life as it related to movement stuff i realized people were kind of either oversympathizing or like i don't know pitying i don't do pity okay. um but anyway the connection that i'm drawing now is that a lot of the reason why i got into movement work is because like the or what a lot of the reason why I got into union work actually if i'm being specific um is because so many of the workers that i was surrounded by at university of chicago when i first got there um when i was first introduced to unions um those were my parents you know those were my aunts and my uncles who were you know complaining about their bad legs um and like the wild hours that they had to work for what little pay they had to do that for um and then even when i went into the steel workers like again all of those people were basically my family um so i got into it from having just lived it you know, i didn't get into union work because i read marx at ufc <laughs> right. um, if anything that came second you know once i understood what marx was saying and all these other characters i was like hold up 
Like you're just retelling my family's life right now. <laughs> um, this is not terribly new to me, but I will, I will accept the stuff that is, that is. Um, but anyway, I do a lot of this stuff because of my parents. Like I do a lot of this organizing because um, I don't want any more parents to have to work so hard just to survive or provide for their kids that they become depressed, that they become alcoholics. I don't want parents to have to resort to that simply because the pressures of society were too great. My dad uh, worked in, he created like these giant cement pipes um, that were used in the city. And my mom was a housekeeper. She still is actually, she still works every now and then a private housekeeper for people in like giant mansions. um, Many of whom, you know, treated her like crap. Uh, There were a couple of times where I would go with her and they would, you know, even treat me like crap. You know, I'd try to like have conversations with them and they were just like, that's nice. Go get the broom. Like, okay, sir. Um, And it's just, it's shitty life, you know, being broke in this country, really any country. And I just, I don't think anybody needs to live through that. And I don't think anybody needs to be so stressed out as a parent that they can't be there for their kids as well that they have no capacity. They're so busy working that they have no emotional capacity to give love to their children, right? They're so burnt. They're so tired that the idea of not coming home and just laying out on the bed and giving up on the day (laughs) is their only option. You know, I, I want families to have the time, the capacity the emotional wellness to be there for the people that they love. So it sounds like getting that note with that gift was like a moment I would imagine of you feeling loved, but it sounds like there's some heartbreak in that moment too, that you're reading that and you're like, Oh, the fact that she's not here to give this to me. The fact that it I'm 22 and this is happening. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I'm 22. Most of my other siblings were also grown. I think the youngest one was already, uh, you know, like 16, 17. So a lot of the bur- the typical burdens, you know, responsibilities of motherhood were were lifted from her at that point. And that was the point in which she was able to sit and write out this note and probably say something she's been wanting to say for a long time, but again, didn't have the capacity to do it. But yeah, I mean, I think just the feeling of being loved by those people who are always there for you already and having it expressed to you. I mean, that's a sort of freedom, right? Like who wants to continue this type of work, who wants to continue organizing under the sorts of conditions that we're living under without love. Like you can't go through moments like this one, like Adam seeing a child die on TV and continue to see that over and over and over. 
without having something to sustain you throughout those dramatic moments, throughout those moments of grieving. Like if you grieve too much, if all you do is stay with the trauma, if all you do is stay with the anger, it consumes you. And I think that's, that's a part of what I feel was happening to me for a while and why I turned to art. So what sustains you now that you're not doing the art so much? Like in these, in these moments like this, you know, cause I think about, you know, grief and action, right? Like if, if you're too overwhelmed by grief, I mean, I know for me, I can get paralyzed and um, I don't know. How do you, because you seem like a very active person to me. You seem like a, okay, let's not wallow in this. Let's get shit done. How do we move forward kind of person? Um, what I like to do is I like to make assumptions about my guests and then they can either debunk those assumptions <laughs> or affirm them. I'm here for it. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, so what's the relationship for you between grief and, and action? I think... I've been better at giving love also. I was not always good at it. Um, I think I, I was good at giving my labor uh, when I was an organizer. I was good at giving my time. Um, I was good at giving you know, my, my mind, my brain capacity to making plans and creating wild campaigns or whatever. Um, but I don't think it was until, honestly, recent years that I was finally just like, you know, this isn't the only thing that you have to give. Like you have to figure out how to give general or, or genuine rather love, care and affection towards the people who are around you. Like, not everybody. I'm not going to go crazy, but oh, yeah, I, can, no, never. <laughs> I can, I have a tight knit group of people um, who I'm just like, all right, I really do need you all here. So that when my organizing world is too much, y'all are, y'all are the people I come to. Um, and also just giving little nuggets of that in the organizing spaces too. Um, I think I'm getting better at that. And honestly, mutual aid has helped me do that a little bit. Like I love the people that I've met in the mutual aid work. It's some of the sweetest people who really do want to root um, organizing work, socialism, in care. And I, I need those reminders too, for when I get carried away <laughs> with the work. So it's just getting better giving a little bit more of myself when it comes to care and love. What do you hope happens when you die? Well, first of all, a party. Um, what do you mean? Like you, like heaven is a party or that you're no, like an actual party. party. Okay. Okay. I mean, I don't know that my family is going to want to party, but okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, my Chicago family, I would hope would have some type of shindig. Um, and I would hope that I left something a little bit better than when I came into it, whatever that something is going to be. Um, it could be movement work. It could be, you know, my neighborhood. Um, or it could just be, you know, one person who I happen to have met and we had a kick-ass conversation and it somehow 
change them for whatever reason. Um, yeah, again, kind of cliche, but I don't ever want to be somewhere that I know is not healthy, that I know isn't working uh, for the betterment of others and not try to do something about it so that the next person can come in and have a healthier time there, have a happier time there. I always want to make sure something's better for the next person. So when I'm out, it's cool. Like you don't need me to sustain that spot. It'll be there on its own and you can run it how you want. Like the star worker at the, in the union, get, get five or 10 people <laughs> yeah. to replace. Yeah. You. Yeah. If I'm out, there's going to be 10 more right behind me. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Your Afterlife. If you liked this episode, then you should check out the other episodes. If you can, subscribe, rate, review the show. Um, Go to my website, thisisdavemar.com, for more info to sign up for my newsletter where I continue the conversations on this podcast. Follow Vico at the links in the show notes. Uh, Abolish the police. And I will talk to you next week. Miracles, you can do them. Have faith, you are human, only human, and human beings they do miracles.